Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? This is Agassi Cleve Stamos from GearWorks.com and the E2KG Network podcasting channel on YouTube here with the first episode of What's Your Issue? Uh, it's actually our third comic book podcast episode uh, on the network, and uh, my co-host and partner in crime, Steven, has done even more. So we've recorded uh, the comic book co- podcast a few times, but we've been fooling around with rebranding. Fortunately, and amazingly enough, I still never understand this, but uh, the the name, What's Your Issue, as far as I can tell, has not been taken by another podcast, so uh, it was available. Uh, it was a moniker that, that I used on a comic book review show that we tried to get started uh, a couple of years ago on uh, Geeks Worldwide, uh, and it's still not in use, so we are co-opting it for the purposes of our podcast here. Again, my co-host in crime, Stephen. How you doing, Stephen? Good week so far? Yeah, it's good week. It was a great week. Good. I had a good time on a rock concert last Friday. Oh, nice. Nice, nice. Yeah. I, I see Maroon 5 has been traveling around and doing concerts. Oh, it was so. a, I went to a Fozzie concert. Okay. Very cool. It's fun in Florida. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, so, as always, on each and every episode of What's Your Issue, we run down roughly about six comic book reviews in our review discussion segment. Then we will each talk about the best thing that we read this week, or the best thing I read this week, as well as our honorable mentions. And then as we walk you out the door, we will brief you up on what we are going to be reading next week so you know what to expect. First up in the rundown in the review segment is me. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the silencer uh, issue number nine. Uh, So uh, this is uh, Helliday Road Part 2. Again, this is, of course, published by DC, art by Patch Zercher, the writer's Dan Abnett, colors by Mike Spicer, letters by Tom Napolitano, cover art by Victor Bogdanovich, Jonathan Glapion, and FCO Placencia. Uh, I mentioned the cover artist this time around because I didn't really particularly care for this cover. Um, it's... Uh, uh, the, the, uh, it's a little kind of weird and too Halloween-y um, and cartoonish. Um, for what is actually a pretty uh, serious comic book on the inside. So it was a little too over-the-top for me. Uh, minor issue. Um, and, Stephen, I wanted to ask you, have you noticed, and maybe this is just an abnet thing, is there a thing going on in comics right now where there is a trend? So for the last couple decades, we have historically put the writer's name first in the credits. Is that is there a shift underway? Are we t- starting to see the artist's name first more so? I don't know. I was, what, the artist name was there first? Yeah, and so so Patch Zercher. And the, the same was I the case. Notice. So you and I both read, uh, I think. Silencer. The, yeah, I did read it. I just didn't look at what the order the writer and artist was in. Right. And then, well, what I was going to say was you and I both read the last, like, Suicide Squad, right? Are we, we read a couple of issues or maybe all of the issues of the Suicide Squad Aquaman crossover. And, and the same was true on at least the Aquaman issue. The, the artist's name was first and Abnett's name was second. Yeah, I noticed it does. It's, I didn't know. I didn't really look at it. Yeah. So I don't that's know if. The artist's name first and then the then the writer. Right. It's kind of weird. So I don't know <laughs> if that's a thing that's going on uh, or what, but it just struck me as, as funny. Uh, at any rate, uh, this issue, again, is good. The series is wonderfully consistent, I think is the main thing I would say. Uh, so the situation here is a silencer is an assassin who was formerly in the employ of Talia al Ghul, whose rival organization to her father's League of Shadows, or whatever is is in the books now. I lose track on whether or not it's League of Shadows or League of Assassins, 
whatever. Um, Talia's group is named Leviathan. Uh, that group has descended into civil war in the wake of Talia's death. So Silencer's family, uh, her husband, her husband, and I think it's her stepson, um, are visiting a nearby amusement park. And so in the last issue, Silencer slipped across the border to investigate two of the warring factions engaged in the civil war for control of Leviathan. Uh, and at the end, she was caught in a spell by one of the faction leaders, Wishbone, who is a magician who uh, most of the other faction leaders in uh, in Leviathan kind of made fun of and kind of didn't really pay attention to, but she is turning out to be the key threat uh, in these culminating throes of the Civil War. Uh, Wishbone, um, who is the only one who's remained loyal to Talia and is trying to resurrect her in a Lazarus pit, uh, and the spell switched bodies between her and one of the other faction leaders, Quietus. So Quietus, who arguably is more powerful, uh, at least toe-to-toe, in a toe-to-toe fight, decides that instead of focusing on how to switch back, he's going to use this chance to find out everything he can about Silencer and her personal life, uh, because Silencer has been able to pretty much keep it on the DL uh, that she is married uh, and has a child. Um, so in this issue, we open up with Silencer in Quietus's body, intercepting Quietus in Silencer's body, uh, in an effort to stop her. Uh, so on art, uh, really solid fight choreography was my main takeaway. Uh, the vehicles could use some work. Um, this is a, a thing that tends to happen in comic with comic book art uh, because people don't draw vehicles a lot and not all of them uh, do it well and practice it as a key part of their craft. Uh, so you get these kind of curvature, lo- curved lines on like the roofs of cars um, when normally the roof of the car... Um, from that angle at least would be kind of straight so the vehicles could use some work so the, the cars kind of wind up looking a little bit cartoony um, I mentioned this because there's a big car chase is a significant part of the opening sequences of the book um, but you know this is a pretty complex fight because you have Quietus who's got all sorts of attachments kind of cyborg like popping off of him all over the place uh, so I give props to Zercher for keeping all that straight uh, and I'm not familiar with his work uh, in the past um uh, one thing that doesn't work here on art, though, is the lettering. Uh, they made a choice to try and do colored borders around the thoughts of characters to represent exposition from a particular character, so each character's letterbox is colored differently. Um, but I, I definitely lost track on it, uh, and it got confusing as to whose thoughts I was supposed to be reading. And I was like, look, I, I know the comic book industry suddenly had this like religious schism a few years ago where they decided to stop doing thought bubbles, but I'm like, you guys need to just do thought bubbles. When it's when it's appropriate, just just do thought bubbles. Um, <laughs> so the creature work here, I didn't, I wasn't too crazy about. Uh, there's a point because there's a point where Wishbone sends her cat to the scene of the fight uh, and transforms it into a big hulking. I call it a splotch, for lack of a better term. I didn't know what to call it. It's not a cat, uh, but you know it's the cat. Um, but I will say, you know, one of the things that's really neat here on art is uh, there's uh, the color and lighting. Uh, make it feel like it's late afternoon uh, and so that carries throughout the book consistently and I was very impressed by that uh, so you get kind of this effect of the, the waning sun casting its last rays of yellow and low on the horizon uh, the effect is subtle but it definitely comes through despite all the debris and explosives being thrown around uh, on story the story comes off okay uh, and like I said I asked the question about like the weirdness of the, of the credits but there's a lot of intricacy in the story uh, this book is very is very Deathstroke like. Um, if uh, you or any of the listeners have uh, read that, it's a it's a big spy story essentially. There's a lot of intrigue, a lot of chicanery, a lot of whodunit, a lot of back and forth, uh, and a lot of misdirection. 
Uh, but Abnett does a good job of keeping it together because that's one of the things that he does. Uh, it can easily lead to a confusing landscape, but I've been able to keep up with it, uh, despite the fact that I've arrived late to the party. And this book is not on my recurring pull list, uh, just by weird happenstance, for whatever reason, um, in various throws of the die, I've wound up pulling it uh, the last, I think, two issues plus the annual. Uh, so the truth of the matter is, is but, but one thing to be said is that one of the reasons I keep up is because I load shed some of the intricate detail because I feel like it just doesn't matter. Like, you just care about Silencer, um, all the Leviathan and the different factions. Because you have people who show up who are leaders of a faction in Leviathan who concurrently get killed in the same issue. So it's like, why would I bother to ever care about keeping up with like who that person's name is or, or what faction they represent if, if they're just going to get killed off? So mainly I stick with it because I'm curious about where this book is heading along with uh, some other things that exist somewhere between DC proper and Wildstorm. Like, it's not what they're letting Ellis do with Wildstorm, but it's also not fully in the DC proper. So you've got this, you've got damage, you've got Immortal Men. Um, it, the whole thing is just curious and interesting and fun. Uh, you know, DC isn't doing anything else like this as far as those three books are concerned um, in terms of playing with kind of these semi-permeable fabrics of a shared universe, uh, and neither is Marvel. Uh, at the end of the day, I give this book a uh, 7 out of 10. Um, sharply and boldly executed, there's a scene, uh, like I said, where, where one of the Levine, Leviathan faction leads gets brutally eaten by a giant monster cat, and that's straight-up abnet, right? <laughs> some, like, some weird funky stuff there um you know the book's not doing anything mind-blowing uh, but at the end of the day the issues are consistent from month to month and that's just kind of some of the sinew you need to put together a solid run uh so did you read this issue steven yeah i read this issue i actually liked it a lot um, okay i thought the action was very well done like it was really cool seeing um the silent certified quite quietus right right I know they were switched. Their bodies were switched, and it was confusing to read the voices because I would sometimes read Quietus as Silencer, and then end up reading Silencer as Quietus. Because well, well, right. That's, so that's my thing about that's my thing about the letter, the, the shaded letter boxes, right? The pro, compounding the problem is the fact that their bodies are switched. So you're like, wait, who's wait, who's this? What? So yeah, it was just a little. I was like, just, just, please, just use thought bubbles. Um, I still very much enjoy the issue, and yeah, I I think Silence is actually my best. It's honestly the best series for um, out of all the Dark Knight's Metal spinoffs. Right, I think Silence is the best one. Cool, cool. The other ones were pretty. They are okay. Right, All right. So I'm gonna roll on and talk about Black Panther and uh, this. Uh, this one I was not as enamored with. Uh, so this uh, chapter is The Intergalactic Empire of Wakanda, book one, Many Thousands Gone. Uh, of course, published by Marvel. Uh, and I forget how to pronounce uh, Coates' name. I've heard it several times on other podcasts. but I, it, uh, So uh, Tanahisi Coates is the writer. And Daniel Acuna is the artist, um, who is a name I'm familiar with, but I don't know that I've ever like, like taken more than like a few minutes to look at his work and really think about it. So... Uh, my main takeaway from this book is I don't want this, right? I don't know why they're doing this. I don't know what this is within the Marvel Universe. I, I don't get it. You just had the movie, which blew the doors off of everything. Black Panther Zeitgeist is at an apogee right now. Uh, I don't understand why you don't do a book that firmly grounds that character in the Marvel Universe and has them play a part and be hugely relevant. Um, I would think that that's how you would get a lot of subscribers and readers. Um, so anyway, so I don't I don't know if this is like a 
I don't know if somebody's unconscious and dreaming about the future, or somebody has time-traveled, or this is just kind of like a what-if kind of story. But at any rate, so 2,000 years in the future, Wakanda goes through some extraplanetary um, something or other and takes over some corner of the cosmos. Uh, some of the characters are supposed to be new, but then you still have T'Challa and Mubaku. Um, and it looks like Mubaku is the Black Panther now, which I don't entirely understand. Um, you have relationships going on and people in love with different people. Uh, but I don't, and again, I don't understand. Like, I, I don't understand where they came from or who they are now or why. Like, I don't understand how these people lived for 2,000 years. I, I don't get it. Um, so I don't know if the whole series... And, you know, this is a relatively new Black Panther series. It just rebooted. It's only on issue four. I don't know if they rebooted the whole timeline or what. Uh, but to me, it's just a. it just came off as a colossal WTF um, moment. Uh, I agree. You know, somebody at Marvel definitely took the blue pill on this one. Uh, on, on art, perhaps the biggest shame in all of this is that the art is actually pretty good. Uh, it's a bit impressionist. And, uh, and progressive and it works okay but it feels a little bit extra it feels like it's an, it's an unnecessarily artsy veneer on a story I mean if you're going to go cosmic and you're going to make it an adventure romp then maybe it doesn't need to be quite so artsy it comes off a little like Saga um, and some other sci-fi stuff I've seen uh, and I don't I wasn't I just again I, I totally it didn't click for me um, it looks like a lot of rubbings in some areas with the flat side of the pencil. Some of it, it's not all colored, uh, which was fine. Um, you know, it, it, like I said, it might have come off as, as edgy otherwise, but it kind of wavers. It, it feels like trying to be a little Isad Rebich or uh, Mike Del Mundo, um, but I, I didn't quite feel like it held together. But the big problem is, is that the storytelling I just felt was kind of not great. P pretty awful is what I actually wrote in my notes. Um, there's just big leaps of like there, there are fight scenes and you, you can't tell if characters are grabbing like a futuristic laser gun or what's coming out of them there's just purple and blue blobs everywhere um, I think the big problem I had and the thing that really turned me off to the book is um, there's like a main villain uh, in a suit of armor he shows up and throws this kind of orangish light thing at T'Challa T'Challa catches it and T'Challa turns it into a spear with a purple hue. He, throw, oh, yeah. he throws it... Out of nowhere. <laughs> like out of, he throws it back at the guy, and when it hits him, it looks like it's just a purple light beam. Um, to and, me, that was like plot convenience. Right. And then, and then, and then the camera snaps back to T'Challa, and he's still holding something in his hand, and now it's orange again. And I'm like, what in the heck just happened? Um, and then the other thing is... After So it looks to me like T'Challa spears the guy with some mystical purple spear, and it looks like he's down for the count. But in the three panels after, all of the Wakandan characters act in fear. And I'm like, he just put the big bad... Excuse me. I'm, <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> Your I'm like, he just put down the big bad. What are you three all flipping out for? Well, it turns out that the guy is wasn't taken down, that he's back on his feet. But you don't see that for like five panels later. So it's just, it's just, man, it feels, it just feels bad. Uh, T'Challa looks at this guy with some type of x-ray vision and scans him. And the guy looks young. And at first I thought it was, um, uh, what is the, what is, uh, what is the villain's name in the movie again? Eric Killmonger. 
Yeah, Killmonger. I think it's, it's him. Yeah, it looks like Killmonger, but then, like, at the end of the book, like, you you don't see, like, it, and then at the end of the book, there's, like, there's like a second Black Panther who's apparently with the bad guys. I just, I just really fell off of this. Um, on story, a lot of this is covered in my comments on the art because the, the, the two, the storytelling is so intertwined and, and bad. Um, you know, I, I think this is the first thing I've read from Coates directly. I was hoping for something different. Uh, you know, like I said, Babaku appears on the cover, but the inside of the book seems to mostly be about T'Challa. Um, so I'm unclear exactly what mm-hmm. we're doing here. The upfront exposition didn't help, especially because they call out the fact that, like, a new hero arrived in the midst of this civil war. Um, but I don't. you never really see in the book who that new hero was. Are they talking about T'Challa? Are they talking about Mbaku? I, I don't know. Um, there are rebels in the story, I guess, or, or maybe they're just the spec ops version of the rebels. Um, they call them the Maroons. And I'm like, that sounds awfully a lot like morons, and that's how I said it every time I read it. And I'm like, I don't think you can pull off calling them Maroons in a book like this. I mean... I, I think if this were Charles Soule writing it, he could do that in a way that would get away with it. Um, I felt like Abnett could get away with it. The, the style in which this book is written, it doesn't. It just, it's like every time I see it on the page, I want to say the morons. Um, at any rate, I scored this book a 5.5 5 out of 10. Uh, I'm just not interested in it. Um, there's a weird thing here for some of my normal shticks and approaches. Uh, normally, on a random drop-in book, I will usually give it two chances before I go, okay, if it pops up again on my, on my randomizer, I'm just, I'm not reading it. Um, I, I think I'm at that point with this one already. Uh, so, I, again, I don't know if this is like a four-issue what-if segue, um, but, uh, I mean, the, the book is professionally done. It's not like some of the stuff we saw in Marvel two or three years ago where they had artists who just weren't really professional-grade artists doing some books. It's not that, um, but it just feels really uh disconnected and unglued so did you ever did you read through this or flip through? yeah i read it i just didn't know what to think of it because it's like is black panther in a coma or trapped in some type of alternate world because i was thinking it was like maybe it's like like captain america with recommender where right. armin zola trapped um captain america in this alternate world and he was trying to escape and he met some couple of people in there and he eventually did escape. But uh, I was, I'm not sure Black Panther is going through the same thing. It's just like some alternate future of, of Wakanda. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, and I'm trying to understand what the hell the story is going on because it's not, <laughs> it's not in constant, it's, it's not like the story's in continuity. It's just all, tra- it's, just, it's just a deep dive into its own world and it feels like this is an alternate world book not like a book that takes place six on six right i don't know right and, look, and let me say let me just point out so i am not somebody who gives a, a book a bad score in, in in my own menagerie because i don't agree with the creative direction it's going in right so I don't, I don't automatically dismiss a book because it's not in continuity or it's not part of the larger universe, which is, which are, I, I like continuity. I like big universes, but, but when you, but when you take it in a creative direction that I don't like, and it's not done well, then, then it's kind of double indemnity, right? Then, I mean, again, this is why for me, this book dips down below, you know, pretty much for me, a 6.0 or above is like a a book that's hitting the mark, right? It's and then and then you yeah. get higher breakouts for things that are special. 
Um, but this book, like, I, I, I could have probably There's, given it a lower score. There's not even much dialogue. I don't know what the oh, characters really talk. It's just it, well, it, action it, going on everywhere. Yeah, and the and the dialogue that is very stilted and like one linerish and like not yeah. interconnecting. Now, the other th- the other thing that I think was problematic for me creatively in this book is you get a lot of silent panels. And you get a lot of silent panels with confusing fight choreography and things don't t- that don't tell a good story. Listeners, I want you to hold on to that thought because later we're going to talk about a book that, damn, like this is literally the best silent panels that I've seen in a book since Warren Ellis did his run on Moon Knight. Uh, but we will get to that later. Steven, please wash the bad taste of Black Panther out of my mouth okay. by talking to me about Star Wars Poe Dameron. Oh, <laughs> uh, Star Wars Poe Dameron was actually pretty good. I really did like this issue was by um, it was by Charles. the writer was Charles Soul, and the artist was Angel Angel Uzia. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but um, it was very well done. I it was the final issue of the series, and there was a story where the Princess, I mean. General Leia, she uh, she sends the Black Squadron. This is before. This is like this story took place before and during, during and after the Last Jedi. So she she sends the Black Squadron on this mission to do some to trade some natural resources with another planet. This thing Kuraku, something like that. I don't know how to pronounce it, but uh. They do some trading, and then as the trading is going on, they have um, the first the first order invades the planet, and they have a war. So the Black Squadron's team has to actually fight them off. And Paul Dameron is is in he's with he's in the interactions with whatever is going on in Last Jedi, so he's not with the team. So they had to fight off. The, the first order by themselves without Paul Dameron. And they they do fight them off, but they, they run into some trouble. And then uh, the story ends up shifting to the last, taking place in the last, like after The Last Jedi. And Paul Dameron's talking to Leia. They say he has to go save his team because he feel like his team is going through something and they haven't been, they haven't come back after a while. So he's going to go try to go save them. He ends up going over there and they end up fighting. He ends up saving them and they fight off the last soldiers. That's from the first order that invaded the planet and they were able to get their resources. And that was the end of the story. But um, I really did enjoy this issue because you get to see the soldiers. I mean, the people from black squadron able to fight off the, the the soldiers and they didn't care about risking their lives. One of the soldiers, <clears throat> I think she was like some type of vampire, like some. She she got a shot in the chest, but she was able to walk it off and still fought the enemy. So um, enemies from the first order, she was able to fight them off, and it was pretty good. I really much enjoyed it. And I think I'll honestly give this issue uh, a 9 out of 10 because it was pretty cool to see the characters care more about 
the people of the planet than themselves. And that's pretty touching to see people who fight in the resistance think that way. So yeah, and the art was pretty well done as well. Very cool. Now, are you reading uh, any of the other Star Wars books, uh, Vader, Doctor Afra, or the main Star Wars book? Um, yeah, I am reading those two books as well. Okay. Yeah. The, I mean, out of those, does this one compare well, or do you like this one better? Or I like it the same as Doctor Afra. I like. Okay. I like those. Darth Vader is is okay. It's not as good as Carrie on Gillen's Darth Vader because I I did read. Killing Gillen's Darth Vader and is Charles Souls is kind of is weaker than the writer is kind of weaker than than Carrion Gillen's. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. it seems like to me Charles Soul writes Darth Vader as like an action book. Okay. I'm not really into action books, and Carrion Gillen wrote it as a more of a story, and I like I'm more into story than action. Huh. Yeah. No, that's an interesting take. So, Doomsday Clock number seven by DC. I, this is one of these things that's going on that I feel like somebody is trying to wave their hands in the corner and say is an important thing that I should pay attention to. But I, I, I'm not <laughs> I actually enjoying it. But I'm not paying that's attention fun. to it. So, so tell me if I'm if I'm doing something wrong here. <laughs> well, I don't know. I actually I'm joining a lot. It was Doomsday Clock by. Um, Doomsday Clock number seven by Jeff Johns and the artist is Gary Frank. And it was really well done. I actually enjoyed this issue. There was like some interesting plot twists with uh, the new Rorschach's origin that uh, you find out that Amadeus actually planned like plans his parents' death in order for him to f- come with him to the DC universe and find Dr. Manhattan. And they do gather with a whole bunch of DC characters like Thunderbolts and Saturn Girl. And they end up finding, they end up getting, finding Dr. Manhattan. And he ends, he did talk to him for a while and he talks about how he got there, but he doesn't explain the full story, so he ends up leaving. So, I just think the the twist with finding out um, the new Rorschach's um, origin is pretty interesting, because they did show they did explain his origin in the fourth issue, and we find out that the origin is not his actual origin; it was it was something else in the seventh issue. So I'll give this uh, an eight out of 10. It was, it was pretty fun. Oh, your mute is my, yeah, no, sorry. Yeah. I've got a software (laughs) mute and a hardware mute. And uh, yeah, if you ever talk to the guys on the games podcast, they will, they will affirm that I frequently flummox myself when it's um, multi-tiered yeah. controls. So, uh, any any particular additional notes on art or story? Things that you like? Oh, things I that forgot you like? that. I also find out one of the two, like jokester characters, is from the Watchmen universe. Osmond Diaz tells them that one of them is that she's pregnant, and I thought that was interesting and see what that would lead. I wonder what that lead up to. Right. Right. 
So now is this, I mean, is this firmly in DC continuity or is this another thing that's kind of like... I don't know if it's, in the, uh, it's confusing because I don't know. It hasn't said where it takes place, but I'm getting the feeling it takes place on in Flashpoint because okay. huh. Batman, <laughs> Batman is wearing his Batman Incorporated outfit and Superman okay. is in his underwear outfit. Right. So, Although, well, but it's, it's kind of weird. Yeah, but new now, new super. Yeah, that's weird because new Superman. Well, it's so it gets weird I know now. Superman right? is wearing the underwear now. Right, but but, it, but you're right. It creates that thing where like you're now you don't know because the new Fifty Two was now a thing in the middle. So when you see like the older costumes, you're like, and Batman Incorporated suit should have been New Fifty Two, right? No, well, it was before New Fifty Two. It was. Okay. It was uh, there was a Batman Incorporated book in the New 52. Right, right, right. There was Batman Incorporated before New 52 as well. So it gets confusing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So he was wearing a different suit in the New 52. Right, right. Than the one before New 52. I don't know. Yeah, I was, uh, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about Justice League Odyssey right after this, actually. And one of the things, and I saw, you know, comments on Twitter um, with some people chanting for a DC reboot, reboot, and then somebody, uh, somebody in the industry refuting that call. And then I read Justice League Odyssey number one, and I was like, are they coiling us up for a reboot? Because this, this, this has the flavor as if you know they're going to flip the status quo um, pretty significantly in what could result in a reboot. But then I looked, and I was thinking, because uh, actually I wrote in my review notes for Justice League Odyssey, I was like, yeah, maybe it's just about time and maybe DC is just going into this thing where we're just going to reboot every four years, which I can actually see as being a thing that could actually be effective. I, I didn't realize Rebirth was just two years ago. Rebirth was just 2016. So we're only two years into this. Um, yeah, but it seems like between New 50, between Flashpoint, New 52, and Rebirth, we've just traveled a very long road. So I was... Shocked and amazed, kind of really, to realize how short a time uh, it's been. And I want to say Rebirth started like the latter half of 2016, too. So it's like it's literally been like two calendar years. Um, so uh, at any rate, talk to me about uh, Extermination number three. Is this an X-Men book? Well, I think it's about just the Odyssey or... <laughs> What's that? I think it's a lot more about just the Odyssey, sorry. Yeah, it's an X-Men book, Extermination. Are, are you, do you you want me to, you want me to talk about Odyssey first and then you talk about Extermination? No, I thought you. Was, I got confused. For no, that. sorry, no. sorry. <laughs> uh, I got it. Is Extermination is actually yeah, it's an X Men book. It's supposed to like, I think it's supposed to make it's supposed to lead in the the young X Men like the original young X Men into the, they're gonna is I think it's a story that leads into them going back into the past right or just takes them off the board completely yeah right, right. yeah so this is a mini series that that's gonna take them off the map and and that's in that series uh the x-men are being hunted by some young cable like this is a younger version of cable and he's gathering all the x all the young younger x-men and in this issue he he got beast in this issue he already had gotten angel and iceman the previous two issues and now he's just gotten beast 
and all the X-Men are trying to help the younger X-Men fight off. And Jean Grey is with the X-Force because uh, um, Cable ends up getting killed in the first issue, the original Cable. And they want, apparently the, the original X-Force wants revenge. They want to find a way to kill the younger Cable. And as that's going on, there's also a villain I don't know that was in Days of Future Past, I think. His name is Ahava, something like that. And he's also involved in the battle. And people thought that Young Cape was working with him, but you end up finding out in this issue they were not working together. It's two separate affiliations, I guess. Yeah, so it was pretty interesting to see how Jean Grey and the younger Jean Grey as a working with the original X-Force and how they actually, I mean, at first she didn't agree with them to kill younger Cable, but then she, they end up convincing her that to let's go kill him because they killed someone they cared about and someone who's, they talk about how Cable's actually their mentor and told them how to do things differently than X-Men doesn't operate. Like they don't, they don't kill people. That's how the X-Men operate and X-Force does it. They actually kill people. So it was interesting to see the discussion going on with Jean Grey and the X-Force. Okay, very cool. I mean, how do you feel? I mean, so are you... And I would give it like a, a seven, a, a eight. Actually, I would give it an eight, yeah. Okay. Out of ten. So now are you a regular reader of like the X-Men books? Yes, I actually enjoyed the X-Men a lot. Okay. So, I was, I watched, I, I mean, I was, I got to X-Men since the X-Men Dami series and X-Men Evolution. And when I've, I mean, my first um, combo was House of M. So okay. I'm really into the X-Men a lot. Yeah. So how do you feel? So, so, so I was into the X-Men notionally in the eighties. I was a big New Mutants fan, probably more than anything. Um, I was there for when Magique, like, you know, discovered her her armor that she could make appear, and as she learned to like slip across into the demon dimension and all that stuff. Uh, but I also saw it go off the rails, uh, and I can't remember if it was a thing that Chris Claremont started on his way out, or if it happened after his exit from the X Men. But with the time travel silliness, uh, so 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 my question is: I feel I have felt like. This most recent rendition before the extermination stuff started with X Men Blue and X Men Gold, I have felt like this is the most orderly variant of like the X Men editorial desk that I've seen in decades. Because I, I felt like ever since like the late '80s, early '90s, when the time travel stuff started, X Men has kind of been a jumbled mess. Um, how do you feel extermination is doing? trying to tie those things up and prepping to reset the status quo and get all these books marching kind of in the in the same direction. I think it's, it's doing a pretty good job on... Because it does show X-Men Red and, it's, and X-Men Gold in the, in, the, in the book as well. And it doesn't really interfere with what's going on in their own books. This is its own separate story that takes place. I think this book takes place after X-Men Blue. I'm not sure because X Men Blue already got already ended 
and they're still they were still in the present time it's not like it and it didn't end with them going to the past or anything so i'm thinking the story takes place after both x-men gold and blue okay all right cool yeah i think it's doing pretty good the right. action was really fun i enjoyed the book it's it was good Good deal, man. All right, well, I'm going to wrap up the review segment here by talking about Justice League Odyssey number one. So I saw a lot of buzz on Twitter that people really enjoyed this book. Um, I'm not sure if I saw, like, more buzz than is really warranted. You know, if I just saw the vocal minority. Uh, Subtitle of this book is Ghost Sector Part 1, obviously published by DC writer Joshua Williamson, who I am familiar with from his run on The Flash. Um, artist uh, Stepion Sechik, who I am not familiar with in Letters by Darren Bennett. Now, one of the things to discuss in this book, uh, because I don't keep up with like uh, solicits and, and all the insider news and whatnot, I don't know, it, it seems like this book is an ongoing, right? Because normally if it were a miniseries or a limited, it wouldn't be subtitled. Uh, it wouldn't be subtitled part one. Like there would be no arc in a miniseries because the miniseries would only be like four to six books. The miniseries would be the arc. So it struck me as strange, uh, and I'll get into why, uh, that this was subtitled as a part one. Uh, So I didn't know, this book probably represents the one that I struggled with the most this week in terms of like where I was going to come down on it from a review score perspective, but also just from a a feeling perspective of whether I enjoyed it or not. Like I I actually wrapped up the book and kind of walked away from it not knowing how I felt. Now, Now one of my sticks that I'll explain is... I do a thing <laughs> where I force myself to score a book as soon as I get done reading it. Uh, I do not let myself walk away and marinate on it um, because I feel like often that sometimes will skew a score more positive or negative th- than is really warranted. Um, I will say and admit that this is a book that if I had walked away from it uh, and thought about it and come back to it, I probably would have scored higher than I did. Uh, because I, as I thought about it more, I think I realized that I maybe liked it a little more than I felt initially when I put it down. Uh, so, um, you know, but you know, so with everything else this week, like I knew I kind of liked Silencer, I knew I didn't like Black, Black Panther, and so on. This one I had a tough time. I went back and forth on the art, I went back and forth on how I felt about the reveal at the end. Uh, but when all was said and done, and Blad Nabbit, I completely forgot. I'm going to need to put it in the thing. This is a spoiler show, so as you know by now that we've been at it for 30 minutes, uh, we are going to talk about the books. So I guess you know that uh, I'll do a better job of trying to put that. I had it in the agenda, and I completely blew through it. Um, at any rate, uh, uh, when it was all said and done, I came down on the side of like uh, for what the story is trying to do with four of the younger heroes who have been around for a long time in the DC Universe but DC still casts as more youthful than Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Uh, I hope this is not going to tread too heavily on what Marvel is doing with Champions, because in some ways it feels like they're kind of winding, coiling up to do the same thing, and I know and I get that the big two often parrot each other thematically, um, but I don't like it. (laughs) So, um, like I said, I'm familiar with Williamson from his run on The Flash, which I think I was an overall fan of. Uh, even though Flash never wound up in my recurring pull list. Uh, Sedgis is entirely new to me, uh, so let's talk about a little bit more about the book. Uh, so the situation here is, uh, so we have a lot of call-outs to things that have been going on in the Justice League and its associated event books. There's call-outs to the Metal. There are references to things you would know about if you've been reading the new League book that Snyder kicked off. Indications seem to be that this is an ongoing, as I mentioned, given the subtitling, but then it seems very weird that you would chart these particular four characters off on their own in an ongoing book. 
So I'm not clear on how they're going to be operating separately, but then still be in continuity on the regular book. Um, maybe this is going to be like a Batman Eternal deal, where it's like a thing, but not quite a thing. Uh, anyway, you get Azrael, uh, and then the really neat thing about this book, and I guess one of the reasons I started to kind of fall in love with it, is you put Cyborg back together with Starfire. Uh, they were together for decades in uh, the Teen Titans and Titans, and then they were separated and pointed in different directions. Cyborg, in, in multiple reboots, suddenly became a founding member of the Justice League, which I guess I have a thing for that I don't like about that. Um, and Starfire, at one point, went off and became one of uh, one of the outlaws in Red Hood and the Outlaws. Um, so it's it's it was wonderful to see them back together and to see them written as if they have this deep relationship um, from, from from having adventured and fought together before. Uh, and I also love that you get Green Lantern Jessica Cruz, who's one of my favorites because I've been with her for so long. Uh, I jumped on the Green Lanterns uh, reboot when it rebooted with Rebirth with uh, with uh, Baz and Jessica Cruz together. Now those two are being separated and are off in different parts of the galaxy doing their own thing. Um, but anyway, you have these four who are put together in a space trekking vision quest, and by various misadventures and happenstance, they end up in this region of space that's been forbidden from entry by the Gardens of the Universe uh, and has only been allowed to be patrolled by crews for some reason. Um, on art, uh, again, things here were weird for me. Subject seems to float right on the fence of being too cartoony um, versus tipping over to be kind of along the, the Isad Rubich route. Um, the art feels a bit kind of like uh, Fiona Staples on Saga, and it's kind of heavy metalish in in terms of the face. Faces are very big and prominent. He does a lot of close-up camera work. Um, and, and each face, I, I, what I applaud is each face is definitely shaped differently. You know, you have a lot of artists who kind of draw the same kind of basic oval shape of the face and then detail it um, but all of his faces are different like the cut of the cheek is different like some people have slender chins some people have wider chins um, I really like Cruz's new costume design uh, so again I, it, it, it part of the thing that bugged me about the art was it just it didn't seem to stick the landing um, stylistically and, and I didn't like it, it felt kind of like this like manga light and I really didn't like the panels that looked like that uh, still, overall, I, I felt pretty good about it. Um, like I said, I didn't kind of like the cartooniness, uh, but but overall, um, and, and and so one of the things is the cartooniness distracts from the incredible level of detail that um, that uh, I'm forgetting how to pronounce his name. That Cedric puts into the books. Uh, he's got Brainiac ship in it, incredibly detailed. <laughs> he's got somebody put there's put, there's inconsistency details in that book yeah 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 like and what, what what finally got me to kind of tip over as i was flipping back through it is uh one of the opening pages is a landscape splash page of like all of the seemingly infinite planets in the in the ghost sector um kind of reminding me of that uh, that scene in a return of the jedi where like all the rebel ships are coming up out of the screen and all the imperial tie fighters are flying towards them and like i think we talked about this last episode but you have like 80 starships on screen or whatever um, but it's all it's all pretty amazing. Some weird artistic choices, like I don't get steampunk dark side, <laughs> like like dark side in like the frock with a hoodie. Um, but uh, it's a choice, so fine. You know, I I will admit, uh, if it were craggy stone dark side, I don't think it would come off. This notion that he is somehow benevolently trying to help guide these four younger heroes to usher in this this new era of, of the old gods. Um, I don't think I would buy that if he was kind of craggy, monster-looking dark side. Um, so, so I guess 
artistically, that's a thing. Um, on story, uh, like I said, uh, it talk, kind of talked about it a little bit in the overall setup. Uh, but but again, we get the reveal, so I kind of mentioned it already. At the end of the book, you find out. So th- they talk through the book about how there were these voices in their head. Azrael has always had a voice in his head. Um, he mentions that this voice, that the new voice he's hearing is somehow different. And then uh, Starfire and Cyborg also mentioned that they've had a voice speaking to them also. That's what eventually got them all headed towards the ghost sector. Uh, so you find out at the end of the book that the voice that's been talking to them is Darkseid. But the other big reveal you get, probably and possibly the more remarkable one, is that uh, this notion of the old gods, you know, throughout the book they talk about these planets and them having these old religions and worshipping the old gods... It turns out that the old gods are Asriel, Cyborg, and Starfire, uh, which I which I was like, wow. Um, now the only thing that that cuts me a little wrongly is that we kind of just did this at the end of New Fifty Two uh, with the Justice League, where they met basically what was kind of DC's version of the Eternals or the Celestials, um, and all and the just various members of the Justice League absorbed those powers and became godlike. Um, for like a few issue run, so we kind of did this a little bit, but I think they're going to do. I'm I'm pretty confident that uh, <clears throat> that Williamson is doing something completely different here. Uh, at the end of the day, um, I scored this. I scored this an 8.0 out of 10. Again, it was the third book that I read this week. It was my follow up to the bad taste that Black Panther left in my mouth. Uh, like I said, if I didn't have my thing about scoring it the way that I score it, I probably would have scored it higher. Uh, this is kind of I, what I like about this book is it's a great like twenty somethings story because the, all these characters in the book, regardless of how long they've been around, are kind of portrayed to be like in their early to mid twenties. Um, so I kind of like that. Uh, and then you put Dark Side in it, and which just gives you kind of a, a God only knows factor. You just don't know what that guy's going to do um, and what he is going to try and pull off. So overall, I like it. It feels a bit like uh, like the. Uh, there was a there was a thing DC did last year I think uh, like about the Amazons and I can't remember what it was called I read a, b- a bunch of it though uh, and this feels kind of the same way so I'm very curious and interested to see what goes on there overall just good stuff going on from the Justice League desk uh, at DC uh, Stephen you mentioned so you flipped through this one as well any any thoughts on it Yeah I've read Justice League Odyssey um, it was a lot to take in because it was like a lot of interesting things that were brand new in this book and. It was pretty interesting to see uh, Starfire and Cyborg talking to each other. I don't know, but it felt like it was kind of flirtatious. Like, there's like I don't know if there's gonna be a relationship between Cyborg and Starfire. Yeah, but it, it looked like they were talking very flirty. Yeah, it feels like they edged towards that and then kind of walked back from it. At the end of the day, I just it came off like a, a little bit kind of like the the Will Riker um, uh, Deanna Troy relationship before. You know, when they were, they had dated, but then they weren't dating and they were really good friends, or like the Beverly Crusher Picard kind of relationship. It felt kind of like that, that there's a, there's a closeness and an intimacy there, but it's not, it's not physical. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, yeah. I just, I really appreciated what they did with the book. Yeah, and they like seeing Azriel and Jessica Cruz in the book. Yeah. And it was a pretty interesting plot. I want to see what Dark, why Dark Side wants to, I'm not, I'm not sure. Are they really the old gods? It's kind of weird that supposedly Cyborg, Azrael, and Starfire are supposed to be the old gods. 
Well, and that's, it. And years before he would be born. Well, and that's well, I mean, like thousands of years. But th- again, <laughs> this is kind of what I like it. Like you would think, you would think in a DC book, if there were a bunch of people sitting in a lost sector of the universe who were worshiping old gods, and those gods had been reincarnated, which is kind of how I'm, re- I'm reading that they're reincarnations of those gods. Yeah, that's how I'm thinking. You would think, you would think, you would naturally lean towards oh well certainly it's superman wonder woman batman and like you you pick like one like martian manhunter right so so the fact that it's cyborg starfire and azrael like is just completely out of left field for those three characters uh but makes yeah. it so and that, and that one of them is azrael also makes it very interesting um but i i keep saying i hope this isn't what they're doing what marvel's doing with champions but in some ways i i hope that it is like i what i like about champions is it is establishing a foundation to have a changing of the guard, right? To have new heroes in the Marvel Universe come to prominence. Um, And I kind of like the thought of, like, Cyborg not being a junior member of the Justice League at some point, but leading the Justice League at some point, and having this additional cast of younger heroes, you know, behind him or with him. So let's go ahead and talk about the best thing that we read, each read, this week. For me, and I tweeted this out, uh, and got some, you know, some thank yous and some responses from Chip Zdarsky. Uh, for me, it was Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man number 310. Um, this is Zdarsky's farewell issue for Spectacular Spider-Man. The last few issues with the Sandman story were, were incredible. Like, I have been, I have been, you know, eyes tear, you know, uh, eyes filled with tears um, the last two episodes reading the Sandman story uh, and this story... Um, which is about basically, you know, Peter Parker, uh, you know, in classic Spider-Man faction, uh, intercepts uh, crooks escaping from a robbery. Uh, two of the crooks, um, he he snabs and turns over to the cops. He chases down the third one, and the third one's like a 13-year-old kid, um, or, you know, 15-year-old kid. Uh, Spider-Man then uh, builds a relationship with the kid, uh, starts getting him back on the right path, but when the other two crooks get out from jail, I assume on bail, uh, they they believe that because the third kid didn't get nipped by the cops, that he must have sold them out, uh, and so and they kill him. Uh, it happens off screen; you don't see it. Uh, the other setup for this issue is that uh, there's a guy who's a film student who's going around interviewing people and getting New Yorkers' feelings about Spider-Man. Um, and one of the people interviewed is the mother of this kid. Uh, and you see her breakdown during the interview. You see some flashback scenes. Um, and all, all these are, things are done in silent panels. And this is, again, this, this is the issue that I was talking about when I say, this is how you do silent panels. Um, you, you know, you progress, you see Spider-Man uh, come to the kid's apartment, look for him. He's not there. Uh, he comes, he, he, you know, he was swinging in through the window. He comes down and rings the doorbell. Um, the mother doesn't answer. Uh, he starts to walk away. The mother comes out of the door. The two of them look at each other. They don't say anything, and she just kind of collapses in his arms, and he understands what ha- what's... Excuse me. Get a little emotional again. Um, he understands what has transpired, and then you get, like, these uh, four or five panels uh, with, with Peter on a rooftop, taking off his mask, uh, and just crying. And, like, th- these these are the Spider-Man stories I want told. Like, 
I, like, I, I appreciate what the movies are doing. I understand that they need to do it. But I'm over teenage Peter Parker and the whole shtick of him trying to pay his rent. Right? It's been going on for decades. I don't need it. Stories like this that talk about how Peter Parker is ingrained with like New Yorkers and, and New York and is part of the, the landscape and is emotionally intertwined. Like those are the stories that need to be that, that Spider-Man needs to be used for. He's a more mature character. You can tell more emotional stories um, with him and I, and I feel like that's the thing that needs to be done. It's an amazing capstone to Zdarsky's run. Um, I feel like his time on Spectacular is a thing. I, I tried to say it a little differently in the tweets to him because I didn't want to like tip him over or say it the wrong way. I, I feel this is the work that he's done that is the most interesting to me. I've never been interested in like the Howard the Duck stuff and the comedic stuff and the kind of the off-kilter, uh, weird humor stuff. But damn, like what he did with this, and it's not just a breakout for him, but it's, it's a seminal breakout for Spider-Man as a character. It's an amazing book. Um, I think I'm going to have to look it up while, while I let you talk about yours. I think I scored this a 9.5, and like I, I, can, I can count on two hands the number of comics that I've ever scored, even given nines to. Um, you know, I've never scored. I maybe I think I scored. I've I've only ever scored one book at ten, uh, but this is a nine point five. I was just uh, amazed. You know, in, in, in the wake of the Miles Morales uh, thing in uh, in uh, in Champions, um, there's just some great Spider-Man work going on. Uh, you know, in in, <laughs> in places other than the main book, and I like Nick Spencer. Um, he 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 does a thing, and he does a thing with his humor. Um, but but to me. You know, in a, in a thing that's, you know, in the Marvel universe, the most thing akin to the Bat Family. Um, I've been super impressed by what's going on, uh, particularly in Spectacular Spider-Man. But I understand there's good work going on elsewhere in Spider-Man stories, which I think you're going to talk to us a little bit about now, Stephen. Oh, that's a little bit about Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah, uh, go ahead. I actually really enjoyed that issue a lot too, and I was considering it to be the best of the week, but I saw you actually put it in there. And I, when I, as soon as I saw that the kid end up getting killed off, I actually dropped the book and started a little bit crying a little bit because that was a little bit heartbreaking as she's seeing that, that the kid was actually trying to be a better person. Spider-Man actually helped him through it. And the criminal ends up killing the kid off. So it's like, it was very well done. I really liked the way Chip Zdarsky actually told his story and, Honestly, did like it a lot. Yeah, so um, I'm gonna talk about the uh, and it was a nice send off because that's his last issue for the series. So I'm glad that he actually wrote a good issue for the last times to write that book. Um, the, um, the 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 book that I thought was the best of the week was um, Ed, it was Edge of Spider Gaddon. It was it was it was written and drawn by Aaron Car- Carter and this this story is like a, it's a whole bunch is a book that is this mini series that introduces a, a whole bunch of spider characters that's going to be in the event of spider getting like this is like a part two of spider verse so in this story you find out you you see it opens up with um Harry Osborne getting a letter from Peter Parker saying that, oh, if you read this letter, I might, you, 
you now know that I'm actually dead, that I'm no longer here. And the letter opens up. Yes. So Harry Osborne finds out that Peter Parker has died. And in the letter, he also finds out that it was Norman Osborne, his father, that put Peter Parker in some Spider-Man experiment. And as he put him in the Spider-Man experiment, he ends up dying. So Peter um Norman Osborne decides to put the the exper- the experiment onto himself and he ends up surviving rather than Peter Parker. And now that Harry Osborne finds out, he decides to get a suit for one of his one of the suits that his father worked on that he didn't care about and he puts on the goblin suit and fights Norman Osborne. Uh, it was kind of weird because it's like it's the opposite. It's like Spider Man is the villain, and how and the Goblin is the villain. I mean, he's the hero. So you have Harry Osborn as a Goblin. They didn't specify what type of Goblin. I'm not sure if it's Hobgoblin or or Green Goblin, but it was just a Goblin suit, and he ends up fighting Spider Man, who just happens to be Norman Osborn, and they end up fighting each other. And as the fighting is going on. One of the spider characters ends up pulling Norman Osborn Spider-Man out of the universe to go help just other spider characters. So you didn't get to finish fighting him, but I really did enjoy this issue because um it was like there were some touchy moments with um Harry Osborne and Peter Parker and their friendship. And they, it seems like they had a good relationship. They was detailing in the letter as as um, Harry Osborne is going to go see what the hell his father has been up to and why did he kill off Peter Parker? Like he he does some information as the story is going on, and it's pretty interesting to see what relationship they, um, Harry Osborne and Peter Parker had because it looked like they had a better relationship in this universe. Than the actual six one six universe, because I noticed in the six one six universe, Peter Parker and Harry Osborn's relationship is kind of complicated. And in this universe, is different. They actually had a good friendship, and I actually liked seeing some a different perspective of that. And it was it was it was a it was an interesting alternate universe for me. So that's why I actually gave the book of the week. Very cool, very and, cool. Yeah, and the art was good, too. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Stephen, unfortunately, I'm going to blaze through the end of this just because we're getting really pushed yeah, for time here. I think we're, we're, basically, we're almost basically done. <laughs> no, that's good. Uh, so, uh, so two, th- two other things I want to mention. Uh, first of all, on... Um, on Black Panther, I know I was very negative on it. I do want to say one of the things I did really like about that book was the panel work. Um, so... Uh, yeah, so uh, so Daniel Acuna's panel work I did like, you know, a little edgy, a little uh, out of the norm, not a bunch of, you know, square panel spreads on every single page, so I did appreciate that. Uh, one note on Spectacular Spider-Man also, uh, so Sean Ryan takes creative reins uh, next month, and uh, while I am not familiar with his works, and I'm a bit little concerned, I am going to stay on Spectacular because the they are returning one of my favorite Spider-Man villains of all time, which is Moreland. Uh, which, if you remember from the John Romita Jr. 
run on Spider-Man was uh, was this whole thing about the spider about the animal totems um, and how you know these uh, ancient forces are kind of responsible and culminate in Peter Parker becoming Spider-Man. So, remaining details from this week's past reviews. Uh, Honorable mentions this week from Steven, go out to Old Man Logan number 48, Old Man Hawkeye number 9, and Justice League Dark number 3. Honorable mentions from me go out to Justice League Odyssey number 1, which I talked about, and uh, Punisher number 2 by Matthew Rosenberg and Simon Kudransky. Uh, was really amazing art by Kudransky. Um, I also tweeted this out um, to uh, to Matthew Rosenberg uh, at Ashcan Press, I think is his Twitter handle. Uh, I did not realize that he had done the previous run, just as I've never really like latched on to who's the talent on The Punisher, because I like it so infrequently. Um, but uh, very impressed that he, that creative team is looping me back in uh, off of a reboot. Next week... Uh, I am going to be talking about... So on the show, I'll be talking about Batman number 56, which is probably the book that I'm looking forward to the most um, as we see how the story unfolds after uh, Dick Grayson has been shot in the head by an unknown sniper. Um, I'll also be talking Justice League number 9 and Star Wars number 55. I'll also be reading Deadpool number 5 and Zorro Swords of Hell number 1 by American Mythology Productions. Um, Steven will be... uh, Pulling uh, The Walking Dead, Doctor Strange, Superior Octopus number one, which I'm very curious to hear about. Uh, Wonder Woman and Justice League Dark, The Witching Hour number one. Uh, and two what-ifs, one for Spider-Man and one for X-Men. Uh, Steven, any final notes or plugs or anything else we need to cover? No, I don't think there's anything else. That's about it. All right, everybody. Thanks so much. I do apologize for this bit of rushing at the end, but I need to skip over. And uh, first, got to get this podcast published, and then I need to get into my... Regularly scheduled Monday night, late night live stream. Um, I'm already going to be up as late as it is. Uh, I'm already going to be up late as it is. So (laughs) thanks so much for joining in. We will be right back here next week for another episode of What's Your Issue. Uh, I can't remember if I called this episode number one or episode number three. I think it's supposed to be episode number one. So we'll be back here for What's Your Issue episode number two, where we will talk about the books that uh, I just mentioned, uh, designate our best thing that we read that week, and also talk about honorable mentions and queue you up for what we'll be covering the week following. On behalf of myself, Steven, the E2KG Network, Gearworks.com, and the Rounding Off Infinity Gaming Channel on YouTube, my name is Gassically Stamus. That's going to do it for this episode for the books that shipped 26 September 2018, and we are out of here. All right.